Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll preview this year's Chicago Thanksgiving Parade. The 88th Annual Edition will march down State Street later this week. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal will stop by to talk about some New York plays that could make their way to Chicago. Later, I'll talk to a young theater artist who has started her own theater company and is presenting a world premiere play on the north side of Chicago. I'll also bring you with on a visit to the Museum of Science and Industry where I got an up-close look at a new exhibit all about Moldorama machines. And I'll revisit an interview I did with an author who wrote a book about the history of Thanksgiving. That's all coming up. Thanks for making some time for a little arts and culture this morning. Who doesn't love a good parade? people do. An estimated 4 million people will be tuning in to watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on Thursday morning. But if you're looking for something a little more local, Chicago has its own Thanksgiving Parade. Time Out Magazine recently named us the second best Thanksgiving Parade in the country. This is Phil Pirovich. He's the executive producer and the managing director of the Chicago Thanksgiving Parade. That was a great accomplishment for us. Philadelphia has a Thanksgiving parade, Houston has a Thanksgiving parade, Charlotte has a Thanksgiving parade, and Macy's is, it's fantastic. And so to come in number two after Macy's is very special for us. I mean, thinking about all parades, I mean, maybe the Rose Bowl parade, but everyone I think thinks of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade, right. and it's New York, but yeah, that's a pretty big accomplishment. Yeah. So yeah. what was your reaction when you, when you saw that? We always thought we were number two. <laughs> I recently caught up with Pirovich at the corner of State and Randolph, which is where this year's Chicago Thanksgiving Parade ends. We talked about what goes into programming a parade and how it's evolved over the years. The first edition of this parade was called the Christmas Caravan. It started 88 years ago. Chicago residents are well aware that we have our own parade on Thanksgiving, but maybe don't realize how old it is and, and its origin. So this started back in the, the 30s? That's right. The parade started back in 1934. And it was created as a way to bring people downtown into the loop for some enjoyment to see the parade, but also to shop a little bit. It was towards the end of the Great Depression, and the parade was seen as a vehicle to generate some economic development along State Street. And then over the years, it's uh, continued and expanded. But I was thinking, um, obviously, the pandemic kind of changed things. Was there a, a pause the past couple of years? We didn't produce a parade in 2020, and so that was difficult not being able to do what we love. But we did come back and produced in 2021, and that was very difficult coming out of the pandemic and the shutdown to get everything moving forward again. And uh, as we started working on 2022, uh, we were uh, having the same sort of challenges as in 2021. So. It was a very difficult first nine months for us. And then around mid-August, it seemed that things changed and we were able to get a lot accomplished in the last couple of months. And we're really, really happy with the production this year. It's gonna be a great show. 
And so I'm always interested, like I'll talk to artistic directors about how they program seasons and things, but uh, how does one go about programming a, a parade? Is there a, like a starting point for you? There is. A, we actually have a formula. Uh, we have a, a formula that relates to certain types of units and number of those units uh, we'd like to have in the parade. And we really, we recruit units towards those goals. Uh, for instance, we'd like to have 24 marching bands in the parade. This year we have 16, so we didn't quite get to our goal, but that was a number we were trying to achieve. And same with our equestrian units, our floats, our balloons. We have goals we try to reach with all those different unit types. And once we uh, get close to those goals, then we put together a lineup in an order that we think is entertaining for people to watch both on the street and on television. Yeah, I was kind of curious about that because parade is meant for this live audience, but then also probably you get a bigger audience of people just watching on TVs. You have to think about how you put it together for both audiences. We do and that's a it's a really interesting question you, you just thought about. We believe that both audiences are equally as important to us. So we want the street parade on the street for the spectators live to be equally as enjoyable as the television viewers. So we don't put more resources into one area or the other. We really try to create that same sort of you know wonderful entertainment experience for both audiences. If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Phil Purevich, the Managing Director of the Chicago Thanksgiving Parade, which will step off at State and Ida B. Wells Drive on Thursday morning. The first hour of the parade is devoted to live performances from local groups, theater companies, and ensembles. We have two performance opportunities for dance groups, cultural performance groups, uh, Broadway and Chicago theater groups, off-loop theater groups, and uh, the first area uh, is called uh, staged performances. And our staged performances fill our first hour of the broadcast, and they're staged for television only. So if there's an elaborate dance troupe with elaborate costuming that can't walk or or perform on a one-mile parade route, we have a static performance opportunity for them for television only. And so that's how some of those groups get to enjoy and participate in the parade. Anything new this year, like something that's never been in the parade? We have the most elaborate float coming to the parade this year uh, in the history of the event. The cost of the single float to build was $150,000. Uh, the funds were raised by a volunteer group. They built the float themselves, and it's magnificent. It's coming to us out of Bradenton, Florida, and it's a, uh, it's a social organization that raises money for various charities called Crew of Europa, and they use this float to travel around the country in their fundraising efforts, and it's going to debut this year at the Chicago Thanksgiving Parade. And then you mentioned, we were talking about the live versus TV, and I think for a number of years it was on WGM, but this year it's going to be on WCIU. Since I've been managing the event uh, since 1997, uh, we've produced on every major network in Chicago, except for WCIU, CW26. So this is our first year on CW26, and there's a natural life cycle to all these partnerships. So it was we had a great uh, experience with WGN and we were very happy to be there for a number of years. And now we're looking forward to building that long-term relationship with CW26 and WCIU. So for the folks thinking of coming down here to experience it live, any, any tips on maybe where they should go, what's a good spot? The best place for me is State in Madison. It's about halfway uh, up the parade route. Uh, there is a good crowd there, but sometimes it's a little less crowded than some of the areas. So I think State in Madison is the perfect location. We always recommend people take public transportation if they can. And if not, uh, a lot of the parking garages are open in the loop so people can drive. And uh, there should be some parking meters available, but people should check ahead of time to see if it's a parking meter holiday. Are there risers or bleachers set up or is it standing for most of the route? 
We do have bleachers, and if people are interested in sitting in the bleachers in the TV zone, they can become an individual sponsor of the parade by going to our website and clicking on that link. And by becoming an individual sponsor, they gain access to the bleacher seating in the TV zone. We're standing at the corner of State and Randolph, so this is where the parade ends? That's correct. And also where the uh, bleacher seating is. Oh. It's on State between Washington and Randolph. Okay, I've always wondered, so at the end of the route, where do the, uh, the bands and the floats, where do they disperse to? I'm not sure. <laughs> no, it's it's uh, something that's really interesting how quickly the parade disperses at the end. So we use uh, State Street and uh, the intersecting cross streets between Wabash and Dearborn, uh, so Randolph, Lake, and uh, different types of units have their own area to disband, which is where they leave the parade route. And a lot of them truly just walk off to the east or west and then go back to their buses or transport vehicles. Okay. Rain or shine, the parade goes on no matter what? No matter what, rain or shine, we're going to be here parading on State Street on Thanksgiving morning. For that morning, like, what are you doing? My day starts Wednesday at 4 a.m. And at Wednesday 4 a.m., my head won't hit a pillow until Thursday night at 10 p.m. What are you doing? I'm the guy that people like to yell at. <laughs> That's a lot of my job, the Wednesday before the parade and on parade day. But on parade day proper, I'm actually in the TV production truck. So I serve as executive producer in the show. And uh, we have a very talented team in the truck. And I'm there to make sure that everything goes as planned. Any estimate on how many people come out to watch it live? Uh, generally, we expect about 400,000 people live. On TV? Oh, no, here, here on State Street. 400,000? Yeah, those are the uh, police estimates. As a non-gated, non-ticketed events, uh, it's always an estimate, but that's been the uh, prevailing estimate for the last several years. How many people on TV do you think watch it? Uh, usually we'll be about a million people in the Chicagoland market, and we also stream nationally and globally, and we'll probably pick up another million viewers there. In your opinion as someone who uh, puts together parades, what makes for a good parade? Diversity and entertainment, to me, really makes all the difference in the world. You know, it's easy for someone to give you $5 million and say, go produce a show. A lot of people could produce a great show, but we take community assets and build it into something that looks like a world-class production. And so when people watch our show next to the Macy's show, they notice that difference. And many of our comments from fans across the country who watched on WGN America for years would very keenly hone in on that and say that we love all the cultural performance groups you have in your parade. We love the diversity. We love how your parade looks like the people that live in the city. And we're very proud of that. That's Phil Purevich. He's the executive producer and the managing director of the 88th annual Chicago Thanksgiving Parade. It's taking place 8 to 11 a.m. on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. It starts at the corner of State and Ida B. Wells Drive, heads north on State all the way to Randolph. You might want to get there early if you want to watch it in person. If you're more of a watch-it-on-TV kind of person, you can check it out locally on WCIU Channel 26. You can find more information about the parade at ChicagoThanksgivingParade.com. <laughs> And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Start spreading the news. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. 
Jonathan is back this week after taking a big bite of the Big Apple. He was in New York for a theater critics conference, and while he was there, he got to take in some theater. Now he's back to report on what he saw, and some of these plays, I would imagine, might end up on Chicago stages in the future. Jonathan, it's probably been a few years since you've been to New York, right? Indeed. This is my first post-pandemic visit, and it's been nearly three years. So, you know, there's a lot of territory to cover. Every every credible theater critic needs to get to New York every now and then. I, I want to begin by just saying a word about an institution that many listeners probably are not aware of, and that's something called the Theater Hall of Fame, which is housed on Broadway at the Gershwin Theater, one of the big Broadway houses. And each year, about eight people are inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame. And Carrie and I are among the voters who select, nominate, and uh, and vote for the, the new members each year. And for 2022, there were several Chicago connections. The most notable one was the induction of Frank Galati, a Tony Award-winning director and writer and actor who had long associations with the Goodman Theater and the Steppenwolf Theaters here in Chicago and Northwestern University, where he was on the faculty for several decades. The new Hall of Famers also included Christine Ebersol and Mandy Patinkin, both of them well-known, perhaps particularly Mandy Patinkin, because he's done a lot of film work. Uh, and a lot of people probably don't realize that both of them were born and raised in the Chicago area, and Mandy Patinkin particularly came from a family that was very important in uh, Chicago theater, everything from uh, the Second City to uh, Steppenwolf. Yes, had yes I remember uh, I went yeah. to uh, Columbia College with Sheldon Patinkin, and one of the, and one of the pieces of advice he gave us was, don't ask me about Mandy. They were cousins. He got along fine with him, but I think he got a little tired of <laughs> you know, Mandy's right. star was descendants, and people were always like, oh, you're Mandy's uh, you know, relative. But yes, definitely a, a high-profile family indeed. So glad indeed. to see that they were that he was uh, added to the hall this year. He was indeed. Um, you know, but the main thing I want to talk about are the four plays I saw. Uh, all plays, no musicals. And foremost among them was Leopold Stott by Sir Tom Stoppard. Uh, Stoppard is now 85 years old, best known for his plays Arcadia, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, the real thing, and his film script for Shakespeare in Love. Arguably, Tom Stoppard is our finest living English or American playwright. Uh, he effortlessly combines uh, intellectualism with first-rate theatricality, to create plays that are thought-provoking and yet always entertaining. And Leopold Stadt is no exception. It's beautifully acted, nuanced characters, and it's a huge family drama with nearly 40 characters. It's one of Stoppard's most personal plays. Uh, he was middle-aged before he learned that his true heritage, which he hadn't known before, was Jewish from Czechoslovakia. And most of his real family had died in Nazi concentration camps. Through various circumstances, he and his mother and father escaped the Nazis first to Singapore, of all places, and India. And eventually he was raised in a Christian household by a stepfather, whose name he adopted, Stoppard. Once he discovered his roots, he spent much time exploring his family's pre-war history in Czechoslovakia, and Leopoldstadt is a fictionalized version of that. The name Leopoldstadt being a once heavily Jewish 
district of the city of Vienna. Now, the play follows four generations of a prosperous and thoroughly assimilated Austrian-Jewish family. They celebrate in the course of the play both Christmas and Passover, and it follows the family from 1899 to 1955, with the last scene featuring the only three family members out of dozens who survived the Holocaust. One of the characters represents Stoppard himself, who has a stunning sense-memory recollection of his lost family, an epiphany, really, which leaves the audience in tears, myself included, and it comes in the last 15 minutes of the play. Leopoldstadt is what theater is meant to be. It's thoughtful, it's emotional, it's evolving, involving, and it's always entertaining. And it's on Broadway uh, at the Longacre Theater. I have to say I'm really excited that a, a play with that large a cast, that many characters, and that series of themes is being presented coming back. I think I don't know what your feeling on this was, Jonathan, but I think there might have been a feeling that audiences just want things that are light. They don't want to be reminded of you know, that, that they were already in fraught times. So to see a work that serious and intense and apparently beautifully executed um, you know, on Broadway is, is quite a thing uh, to, to contemplate. Absolutely, absolutely. And indeed, now of course I didn't see everything, but most of the plays that are on Broadway and even off-Broadway right now seem to have uh, to be serious in intent, which doesn't mean that they are tragedies or without, sure. without humor. Um, uh, but, you know, they're, 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 uh, uh, they're carrying the ball of drama being about something. Case in point, the next play I saw, in which Nazis also indirectly rear their ugly heads, uh, is another new play called Camp Siegfried by American playwright Bess Wall. And it's playing off-Broadway at the Second Stage Theater, and it's directed by former Chicagoan David Cromer, Tony Award winner for the musical The Band's Visit. In any case, Camp Siegfried is set in 1938 at a summer camp for families, not just for children, a summer camp for families run by the pro-Nazi German-American Bund. Now, this camp out on New York's Long Island actually existed and uh, from the mid-1930s until 1941. It's a two-character play about a romance between two 17-year-olds who have uh, Nazi politics as a backdrop because their families are members of the German-American Bund. There are really complex issues here between the two adolescents their families, and the shadow of the politics over all of them. But the boy-girl story has far more weight and far more time spent on it than the politics. And since the play runs just 85 minutes, the Nazi setting really seems unnecessary, or at least, perhaps more accurately, not sufficiently well-developed. Now, uh, Bess Wall is a admired up-and-coming playwright, though I don't know that her work is been done in Chicago yet, but she's had a number of plays done around the country. So uh, she's up and coming, but I think this one, Cam Siegfried, needs some additional work. Cromer has given it a splendid production, very intensely physical. You see a lot of the camp activities that these two youngsters are involved in. And it's beautifully acted by two young performers who are both in their New York debuts. And that's always something that uh, is good to see, and you want to see that. Now, I also saw a new production by another longtime Chicagoan, Che Yu. Che Yu was artistic director of Victory Gardens Theater 
for nine years until 2019. And the course of Victory Gardens has been very, very rocky since his departure, something that Kerry and I have commented on, I, I think, more than once over the last uh, couple of months. Now, uh, the show that Shane directed is called Good Enemy, a new play by a Chinese-born writer named Yilong Liu. It's set in China in 1984 and the USA in 2021, and it's the journey of a young Chinese government security officer who becomes increasingly disillusioned with the repressive conservative Chinese regime, which arose after the death of Mao Zedong. Now, the young officer escapes to the USA with a woman who's been branded as a dissident because she frequents underground music clubs. And then the play, the other scenes are set in 2021 in the United States. And the young man is now middle-aged and seeking to rebuild a relationship with his American-born daughter. Playwright Yilong Liu intends Good Enemy to be really a comment on present-day America, as much as it is, as it is a peek at, at recent Chinese history. Uh, the central character uh, is named Hao, H-A-O, in China, and he becomes Howard in the USA, and he and his wife, who is the woman he escaped with, have a very ordinary, uh, even drab, middle-class life. You hear about it, you don't actually see it played out. And they raise this daughter, one child, from whom Howard is now estranged. He makes two comments that I thought were pertinent. One, Americans are so terrible about understanding stories about anyone besides white people, which in the context of the play is funny, even if it is true. But he also says, every day America becomes more and more like what I ran away from, which also may be true and isn't at all funny. I think down the road of it, Good Enemy will be staged by a Chicago theater troupe. It has something to say. It's pertinent. Uh, Asian-American playwrights are really... Uh, growing in number and 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 rising in esteem among American theater goers and, and artistic directors. And this only has uh, seven characters, so I think it's a good bet that Good Enemy will be seen in Chicago at some time. So if you are in New York, you'll find Good Enemy at the Minetta Lane Theater in Greenwich Village. Uh, you know, spinning distance from dozens and dozens and dozens of good restaurants and bars. The final play I saw was the new Broadway production of Take Me Out. This is the 2002 play by Richard Greenberg in which a baseball superstar, a slugger for a team much like the New York Yankees, comes out of the closet at the height of a pennant race in the summer. Everyone takes his gay reveal in stride until the team brings up from the minor leagues a young relief pitcher who is a virulent, homophobic racist. Oh, uh, I, I think I forgot to say that the slugger is half black. So this young pitcher has, you know, two reasons to hate him, because he's gay and because he's half black. Uh, and when this happens, late in Act One, what has been, in a way, a comedy of manners suddenly turns much, much darker. Early in the play, the slugger's nerdy money manager, which is one of the lead roles, notes that baseball is a, metaf a metaphor for a democratic society. You know, it's a game in which all players have a chance to excel or to be a hero. 
This struck me more intensely this time round compared to the first time I saw Take Me Out 20 years ago, or nearly so. The play hasn't changed. I actually made inquiries. Greenberg did not rewrite it at all. But our democracy has changed. So things come out this time that are different than the things that came out 20 years ago. The lead roles in Take Me Out are played by Jesse Tyler Ferguson, the late of television fame, as the money manager, and Jesse Williams, late of Grey's Anatomy, as the slugger. And the two of them lead a really excellent all-male ensemble. Art, they say, mirrors life, and I think all four of the plays I saw very much reflect American society, past and certainly present. Even Leopoldstadt, with its foreign setting, Maybe it's just me reacting that way, but I don't think so. Well, I'm glad to hear that the revival of Take Me Out is even more potent. I did see that. I, I think I probably saw the same production you did when it was upstairs at Steppenwolf 20 years ago. And yeah. I, it's funny how you can remember things so clearly, even from so long ago. That uh, monologue that you mentioned about you know the inherent dem- democratic nature of baseball is one that I, I've uh, thought in my mind about several times since then. And I, I can only imagine that, as you say, this play has even more resonance now. So it sounds like, Jonathan, you had a really nice trip in New York. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. And let's pivot over to Carrie. You have a recommendation, and this actually, your pick kind of fits in thematically with our segment this week. I didn't exactly go to Broadway for this conference, but I, in fact, was kind of at Broadway with another play that, although it's from 1955, I think has tremendous resonance now. Uh, last week, while you were gone, I took in Timeline Theater's revival of Alice Childress's 1955 play, Trouble in Mind. This is a play within a play set backstage during rehearsals in a Broadway theater. The play in, within the play is called Chaos in Belleville, and it's a piece about uh, voting rights and a lynching, and it's written by a right, white playwright and directed by a white director and is extremely problematic um, in the way that this story is framed. Um, Childress was uh, a contemporary of Lorraine Hansberry's. Uh, This play in 1955 was going to go to Broadway, but producers wanted her to give it a happy ending, which she reluctantly did for the off-Broadway production because she didn't want the cast and crew to lose paychecks. But when they wanted her to change the title and take that happy ending to Broadway, she said, no, no can do. It won't do it. Uh, so therefore, she lost her opportunity to be the first black woman playwright produced on Broadway. This timeline production, directed by Ron O.J. Parson, feels incredibly cogent and powerful and shows us that many of the same issues, many of which you and I have talked about, Jonathan, in terms of uh, protests and controversies at theaters in, in Chicago and indeed across the country, um, are still going on. It, the, the cast here, headed by Shariba Rivers as Willetta Mayer, who is the lead actress playing the mother in the play within the play, is just stellar across the board. Uh, Shariba Rivers in particular is one of those actors who is not, you know, a, a high-profile name in Chicago theater, but she is certainly one of the people, when I see her on stage, no matter the material, I feel that she just elevates everything that she's in. And this is a really great star turn for her. Um, the director, played by Tim Decker, is a self-pitying white man who has a sort of cursory understanding of what method acting is, just enough to cause damage as he manipulates and yells at and abuses uh, the primarily black cast in this show. Um, 
And what you really see is the unfolding of a lot of microaggressions that edge into macroaggressions. And it's, it's, what's interesting is that it's not coming from people who think of themselves as racist. Indeed, the, the director thinks of himself as an ally. He thinks he's doing everyone a great favor, and he keeps reminding them that nobody really wants to see black stories on stage. So the fact that he's even doing this is just a great, you know, munificent act on his part. And, you know, the actors, as it goes on, find themselves getting more and more worn down. Yes, they need the role, but do they need this kind of grief? And I think that this is still a very timely topic. Um, it's, the play runs about two hours and 15 minutes, but I was entranced throughout. As always with Timeline, you get a lot of interesting uh, dramaturgical information in the lobby. One thing I learned that I didn't know before is that Alice Childress, the playwright, who died in 1994, was for a time married to Alvin Childress, who played Amos in the television series of Amos and Andy. He was also, as she was, you know, a veteran of New York theater, including the American, uh, I think the American Negro Theater, the Federal Theater Project. So she had a first, you know, had a first row seat at seeing what it was like to negotiate a career between more high-minded work and then having to, you know, kind of play to these stereotypes in order to get mainstream acceptance as a, as a black actor. Uh, still a very timely issue, and um, it's also a very funny show. It's biting, it's satirical, but within it, I think there are some really sharp-elbowed <laughs> observations about uh, what allyship means and whose voices get centered and how. So I highly recommend Trouble in Mind at Timeline Theater. Okay. Do you know when that closes? Oh, yes. And I'm sorry, yes. Time, and that is running through December 18th. Okay. Jonathan Carey, thanks so much. Happy Thanksgiving. Oh, you're welcome. You're Gary. welcome. And uh, happy Thanksgiving to all our listeners and to you. I'm Gary Zydek. This is the art section. A new play that pokes fun at purity culture and explores gender dynamics and relationships is making its world premiere at the Greenhouse Theater in Chicago. Cabin Fever is the inaugural production from Adamson Road Theater, a new company founded by Chicago native Lillian Davidson McGrady. Adamson Road is the street where my first flat in London was. I recently caught up with Davidson McGrady and between rehearsals for Cabin Fever, we talked about the new play and her decision to start her own theater company. Davidson McGrady fell in love with theater during her high school years in Chicago, working with Steppenwolf Theater's Young Adult Council. When it was time for college, she headed across the pond to study writing for performance at the Royal Central School for Speech and Drama in London. After graduation, Davidson McGrady came back home, ready to pursue her passion. Well, I knew the obvious answer was to come back here and start making as much theater as possible when I could with the pandemic the way that it was. And I did the next obvious thing, which I started working at Steppenwolf <laughs> in uh, development and audience experience while I sort of waited for an opportune moment. I felt theater had come back enough to attempt. Um, a show was a new theater company and I worked there and I learned a lot. I'm excited to now jump into this world of this show and running my theater company. The company's first production, Cabin Fever, opened last week and will run through December 18th. So Cabin Fever is a play that takes place at a retreat center in the Rockies and it follows 
four couples who take time out of their lives for a long weekend to go on a marriage retreat. It's an inside look into four different couples and where they are at in their marriages and what they need in their growth and what they reflect on across a period of three days that they've set aside to reflect on where they're headed, what their marriages are going to look like. What inspired what inspired the idea? Well, I used to work at a retreat center, um, and I thought it was fascinating that there were so many different couples and families with such a diverse range of stories um, and things that had brought them there. And it, some of them were there just because it was pretty and they wanted to take a beat to consider some things and some people were there you know on the brink of divorce and everywhere in between and I thought it was sort of a gold mine of story you know every character is based on a hundred different people it starts with this kernel of an idea and then what's your writing process like this play took me years um, to write I wanted to write this starting in college Um, and it took a really long time. Um, I wish I could say I have like a whole system. I don't. There are a lot of exercises that I learned in college and through some books that sort of get me going when I'm blanking. But other than that, I sort of just let myself go crazy with it and then take a step back for a day or two (laughs) and then with a fresh mind go back and edit and make it make sense, make the word jumble of thoughts. What are some of the things you're hoping to dig a little deeper into? In a nutshell, really, it's a story. It is a story about marriage, sure, but it's also um, a story about purity culture and how that follows women way past, um, you know, high school age and middle school age when this is sort of um, drilled into their heads by uh, the evangelical churches um, and how it affects everything about their relationships with everybody, not just uh, in their marriage. It is a comedy. (laughs) I hope that the audience can come and laugh, but also I'm hoping for a little bit of catharsis for some audience members. This has to be like a really exciting time though, right before, and maybe not nerves, but like oh, butter. Tons of nerves. <laughs> tons. Absolutely tons. Yeah. What do you think it's going to be like opening night? Luckily, a big support system coming opening night, and I think that will help. I think it probably won't feel real until after opening night. While Davidson McGrady's current focus is on cabin fever, her long-term hope is to build Adamson Road Theater into a place that supports new voices and stories. I would love to run this theater company for my my career, but I'm also, you know, a writer at heart, and I hope that the work does go elsewhere. Both my work that's produced now and new work by other writers that I produce, I hope that this is sort of an incubator and that larger, more established companies pick up this writing. In general, I want to run a company that's very dedicated to new works by all kinds of writers. Absolutely. That's Lillian Davidson McGrady. She's the founder and artistic director of Adamson Road Theater. She's also the playwright and director of the company's inaugural production, Cabin Fever, which is running at the Greenhouse Theater through December 18th. You can find more information at cabinfeverplay.com. 
You're listening to WDCB. This is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. With Thanksgiving approaching, I wanted to revisit a piece I did a couple years ago that dives into the history of the holiday. The holiday's evolution is examined in the 2020 book, We Gather Together, A Nation Divided, A President in Turmoil, and A Historic Campaign to Embrace Gratitude and Grace. You might think from the title that the book is about the current moment, but the focus is actually on the origins of the Thanksgiving holiday as we know it today. New York Times bestselling author Denise Kiernan shines a light on trailblazing writer and activist Sarah Josepha Hale's efforts to establish an official National Day of Gratitude and President Abraham Lincoln's role in helping make Thanksgiving Day a reality. The book also makes an interesting parallel between 2020 and 1918 when the Spanish flu ravaged the globe. The origin story of the holiday many people now associate with turkey, football, and shopping is quite remarkable. I caught up with Kiernan ahead of the book's release to talk about We Gather Together. Was there something in particular that that inspired you to write what turned into We Gather Together? couple different things that came into play. I had uh, come across uh, Sarah Josepha Hale's story a while back and, and found her, her role as a, as a 19th century editor and uh, certainly her campaigning for a National Day of Thanks. I found those very interesting, but I don't generally do uh, biographies. So I, I just sort of, you know, kind of created an idea file, which is what I usually do when something, you know, sparks my curiosity. You know, then a lot of times I find myself as a writer more interested in kind of the intersection and juxtaposition of events and characters as much or more than the individual characters and and events themselves. Her intersection with in her role as an editor with so many fascinating uh, writers who, you know, were unknown at the time that she published very early on, Edgar Allan Poe and, and, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Washington Irving. I found that really transfixing. And then, you know, her campaigning for this National Day of Thanks and, and finally having her campaign embraced by President Abraham Lincoln in 1863 in the middle of the Civil War, that to me was a really interesting time for a a national day of thanks to come about in in the middle of the Civil War. But there was still something kind of missing for me. And and then I just started thinking more about gratitude and and thanks as as a human instinct, as as a timeless concept around the globe. And that, to me, sort of became the the linchpin. So, you know, because we have so much research in the last decade or so about the importance of gratitude and the, the physical, motion, emotional, you know, mental benefits, mental health benefits to embracing a gratitude practice, I thought it would be really interesting to kind of look at, you know, American culture and, and, and also global culture, this practice of giving thanks, you know, just sort of look at culture through the lens of our relationship to this holiday, that the holiday and the practice of giving thanks kind of became a lens through which to focus on these different stories. So when I first got your book, uh, I thought back to what I learned about Thanksgiving in grade school, and it had to do with pilgrims and Indians celebrating over a giant feast. And I'm not sure if that lesson mm-hmm. plan has been updated over the years, but uh, why do you think uh, Sarah Hale's efforts haven't received more attention as it relates to what we now call Thanksgiving? That's a great, that's a great question. I mean, it, 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 in certain corners it does. I don't call her unknown. I think she's under-discovered uh, is, is sort of a, a better way to, to think about her. And, you know, 
people get attacked. You know, I grew up with the same with the same stories you did in school, and I think part of it is that we present these stories to to kids when they're seven or eight years old, and they don't get revisited or recontextualized. It's not something you come back to in AP history or something. You know, Thanksgiving. And so I, I think these these stories kind of perpetuate and, and hang on. And I'm I'm certainly not the first person to to draw attention to the fact that you know this that wasn't exactly how everything happened. What I what I think is interesting about Hale is that when she was on this campaign, writing you know five different presidents and writing governors across the country and heads of territories and ambassadors, you know you can see the letter she she wrote to Lincoln that you know was in the in the National Archives, and she never talked about commemorating any one specific event. She never says we should do this because on this date this thing happened. I think that you know she grew up in a house. With her father was a, a, a veteran of the Revolutionary War, was injured fighting for what would become the United States. She saw as the 19th century progressed that union starting to come apart in very dramatic fashion. I think that the nostalgia she had for the for the Thanksgivings of her youth, sort of combined with that desire to see the union stay together, and I, I think that just sort of culminated in in what she thought was you know, what would be this wonderful national holiday? And and wouldn't it be important and meaningful and powerful to have everybody come together on the same day across the country to say thanks, um, no matter what was going on in the country at that time? I was thinking how hard the the Hall family, who owns Hallmark, might work to promote a, a new holiday because the ripple effect would benefit their company financially. Hal worked so hard and strategically to make this National Day of Gratitude a, a reality, and you just kind of alluded to it there, but if we look at the inceptions of, of those efforts, was the motivation, was it tied to like what you mentioned, her, her family connection, or was it really in this belief that this was what was best for, for the country? I mean, this is one of those times when, when you know, as a nonfiction writer, you really do wish you could just hop in a, a, you know, <laughs> a time travel, uh, yeah, pull a Doctor Who, you know, and go back and just talk to somebody and say, seriously, why were you so obsessed with Thanksgiving? But I, based on the way she would write about the holiday in her books, in her magazine, in, you know, her letter to Lincoln, the way that she would write about it, she she clearly, you can extrapolate from that, that she clearly believed there was a real power and importance and significance to having this kind of national holiday. She also lamented the fact that there were only two, she said, there were only two national holidays, and that wasn't enough. There was Washington's birthday and Independence Day. She thought there should be another and, you know, so I, watching the way that the language she would use to, to write about, to write about Thanksgiving and what it would mean if everybody, you know, came together on the same day, combined with, you know, how she grew up and in, in, in her house, I think that those things did combine to, to really feed her, her tenacious campaign to make this happen, because, you know, it's not like everybody got on board immediately. I mean, she just, she wasn't giving up. And uh, it, it took her a while. And, of course, she never saw, you know, it didn't become a congressionally established holiday until, you know, World War II. So she didn't even in her lifetime see that happen. 
and you write about this in, in great detail, but just the, the flip side, why were presidents so resistant to Hale's idea, at least initially? To, you know, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Um, I, I can only guess that it was they had other, you know, they had other things on their on their mind. You know, why? If it ain't if it ain't broke, don't fix it sort of thing, which is why I think it was so is so interesting that when she wrote Abraham Lincoln, she also wrote his secretary of state, William Seward, which was very wise of her to do because, um, you know, Seward says in his autobiography that he went into Lincoln and said, they're always complaining we're trying to take away states' rights. You know, here's another, here's another state's right we can take away. We can take away the right to declare Thanksgiving because normally what would happen is, you know, the governor of a particular state would proclaim what day was going to be Thanksgiving that fall um, or other times of the year sometimes. And so I think it was really interesting that she wrote Seward as well as writing Lincoln. And I think there was just something about uh, the timing that may have may have struck Lincoln in a way that it didn't, you know, strike the uh, the men before him, that he was actually, you know, they were in the middle of a civil war where people were the exact opposite of united. And, you know, what would it mean to have a day of national Thanksgiving declared throughout the country? So, I, I mean, it, it to me, it was an incredibly, very, very interesting timing. So, yeah, I, I don't know why the folks didn't, uh, other uh, presidents didn't get on board before then. A lot of governors did. She was always reporting of all these, you know, this year, you know, Ohio is on board. They're going to celebrate it the same day. This year, you know, this many different states all agreed and we all celebrated Thanksgiving on the same day. So she would, even when she wasn't getting exactly what she wanted, she still focused on progress that she was making and, and was thankful for the progress she was making, you know, before she actually did get a President Lincoln, you know, to, to go ahead and proclaim a National Day of Thanks. If you're just joining us, this is the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with author Denise Kiernan about her new book, We Gather Together. I want to flash forward uh, a little bit because I want to make sure we talk about uh, Chapter 12. You write about the continued evolution of the holiday and make special mention of how the Spanish flu of 1918 impacted how people celebrated Thanksgiving. Did your thoughts about what you had written change as the current pandemic ramped up? That's a great that's a great question, because, you know, when I when I wrote about the, the Spanish flu in, in 1918, I and during Thanksgiving, I just thought, well, this is a very interesting Thanksgiving to write about. You know, where I wrote about World War One as well and, and World War Two. And, you know, the Spanish flu was right on the heels of World War One. And then, you know, you're going back to edit and proof and, and you know, head into production. And, and you know, wow, you know, the, the book landed in a very, very different world than the one it was conceived in. And I think that you know, it's interesting to read about the, the Spanish flu Thanksgiving because so much of it is so familiar, you know, eerily familiar. People were tired of, of isolation and, you know, they were discouraging large gatherings. They were canceling a lot of events and, and telling people to please, you know, try and hunker down, try and stay home. And one article I came across that was in the newspaper was about one smallish family meal that resulted in 27 different, you know, very severe cases of of Spanish flu. And so, you know, it, it is interesting to look back in history, whether it's, you know, a pandemic or, or some other sort of, of trial and look at how people people handled things and, and how and, and how they, they lived through it. 
you mentioned wishing you had a, a, a time machine to, to go back and maybe <laughs> ask some questions. Uh, if we reverse that and Hale was able to, to go into the future and, and see us today, what do you think oh she'd, my gosh. What do you think she'd oh say about the way we God. celebrate Thanksgiving? You know, I think parts of it would look very familiar. Uh, some of the foods would look very familiar. Big tables. She loved the big uh, overladen table. She wrote about them extensively. I think the concept of, you know, football games and, you know, busting doors down at four in the morning <laughs> would probably be a little weird to her. But I think she would appreciate, you know, towards the end of the 19th century and, and certainly in through today. There are a lot of, you know, we have Giving Tuesday. A lot of charitable focus comes up around this holiday today, too. And, and I, I would like to think that, you know, if she if she could drop in on the 21st century, if she was, you know, freak, freaked out by the doorbuster sales, that I think she would be she would be happy to see a lot of the a lot of the giving and, and charitable activities that go on uh, this time of year too. Denise, I really enjoyed the book. Thanks so much for making some time to to talk with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was Denise Kiernan. She's the author of the book, We Gather Together, A Nation Divided, A President in Turmoil, and a Historic Campaign to Embrace Gratitude and Grace. It's available everywhere books are sold. You're listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Mention the name Moldorama to anyone who grew up in the Chicago area, and chances are they'll know instantaneously what you're referring to. Moldorama machines have been providing on-demand souvenirs and immediate joy to customers for 60 years. Most locals have encountered the space-age-looking vending machines at one of a few Chicago institutions like a museum or the Brookfield Zoo. Why go to the gift shop when you can watch or really listen and, and smell your souvenir being made. The concept is pretty simple. Put your money in. You'll hear some noises. Melted plastic is being injected into a mold and then is cooled between two metal plates. And in about a minute, you have a colorful plastic figurine that usually corresponds with whatever exhibition or display you're near. The very first plastic molding vending machine made its debut at the Seattle World's Fair in 1962. A number of machines were produced and placed in museums and tourist attractions, but by the end of the decade, production of new Moldorama machines shut down. Over the decades, there have been some ownership changes. Today, the official Moldorama company is owned by the Jones family and is based in suburban Brookfield. A new exhibition at the Museum of Science and Industry is celebrating the souvenir-making nostalgia that is Moldorama. I visited the Hyde Park neighborhood-based museum to get an up-close look at Moldorama, molded for the future. I caught up with Jeff Bonomo, the museum's senior manager of special exhibitions. We talked about the generational interest in Moldorama and the company's strong local connections. So I think Chicago area residents have this relationship with Moldorama, and that's in part because Really, the, the history of these machines is tied to Illinois? Yeah, the founder actually is from Quincy, Illinois, and it's a funny story. He actually needed a piece for his nativity scene that he had lost, and then kind of started making missing pieces for people out of plaster. During World War II, plaster was not allowed to be imported in from Germany. So he had a need, um, and he realized a way to use injection molding to create pieces for his nativity scenes 
and then later found a need and an opportunity to turn it into kind of a souvenir business. So he made these Moldorama machines and later sold the rights to the American Retailers Association that now is known as Aramark. And then they had them throughout the country at uh, souvenir stops, tourist stations, bus stations, um, and all the likes. But they kind of started here in Quincy and they kind of still have their headquarters here in Brookfield, Illinois. Right, I was reading about the transitions over the years. So it starts with this, gets passed on, but then at some point, this it's, is it like a family in Brookfield bought it? Yeah, there's uh, two main uh, players in the field of uh, injection molding souvenir machines. And the, the biggest one is here in Brookfield, Illinois. And they actually acquired the rights recently to the name Moldorama. So that is the name of their company. And then there's another one in uh, the south called Moldomatic. Um, but the Jones family has uh, had the machine since the early 70s. Um, so they've been passing that around down through their generations. And they have about 65 machines in many different states. But they're kind of the heart of them are here in the Chicagoland. And did I read somewhere no new machines have been produced since the 60s? That's correct. Those are still the same workhorses that have been around for almost 60 years that they just keep running well um, at their shops out in the suburbs um, and keep finding old machines to use as parts. Um, and just they keep them working, and it's a testament to the machine itself, I guess. And so just for people listening, I'm sure a lot of people like know the concept, but the, the Moldorama essentially is like this vending machine that you put in whatever the, the cost is uh, these days. I'm sure that's changed over the years. And then you can pick whatever type of figure and it makes it right in front of you. Yeah, that's about right. You put in your, your money at the machine of your choice. We have about nine here in the museum and they're usually themed around the exhibition that they're near. And then two large aluminum plates come together and uh, hot plastic is injected into the mold at 250 degrees. There's actually cold water running through the mold so it kind of essentially freezes when it hits the aluminum. And then the excess is blown out and then uh, the molds break apart and the pusher pushes out your hot souvenir you take it out of the machine. You're supposed to hold it upside down for a minute. I'm not sure why, but that's just what they tell us. Um, and then you have your souvenir right, made right before your eyes. And how would you, uh, since this is radio, how would you describe the smell? It, it smells like warm plastic, um, and that's one of the things most visitors have as far as the memory of the Moldorama here at the museum and other locations is just that warm wax smell. Um, so if you follow your nose around the museum this time of year, you'll find about nine different machines. Uh, four of which are in this new Moldorama exhibition. Of course, I had to get a mold while I was at the museum. I found a machine that made little yellow chicks. Lots of rumbling. Eventually, out popped a warm yellow plastic chick. The machine officially made its debut at like a World's Fair in 62, so this is the 60th anniversary. That's correct. We love an anniversary, so it's 60 years of Moldorama. And as a part of the fun, we actually, Moldorama borrowed a mold from the 62 Fair in Seattle, which is the monorail. So you can actually create that mold here at the Museum of Science and Industry for a limited time. Was that the... Uh, I mean, I guess a combination of things, that being the, uh, the anniversary and then the local ties, was that the inspiration to do this exhibit? We've been actually thinking about this exhibition for probably more than 10 years. It's always kind of made the list when we talk about fun, quirky, niche exhibitions, and there's such an underground following of Moldorama fans that uh, now is just the right time to do it. We have the space. Uh, 
our friends at Melderama had some extra machines. So uh, the anniversary was actually just kind of a, a wonderful mistake. Um, we weren't really planning on it. It was just a great coincidence. So what's in the uh, exhibit? So in the exhibition, we have almost 150 different Moldorama souvenirs from the Jones family from throughout the years at, throughout the country that have been made. So you can see those, which are really cool to see, including the first one ever done here at the museum, which was a Lincoln head in 1971. And then we have um, some really cool aluminum molds, which are the pieces that actually take the plastic and create your mold, including one which was rarely run because of the complexity, which is the Colleen Moore's Fairy Castle, which if anyone's been to the museum, they've probably seen the Fairy Castle in real life. Um, so that's down there, which is a real collectible among the Moldorama collectors. Okay. Um, of course, we have four Moldorama machines with all new to MSI molds and they'll be changed out throughout the run of the exhibition over the next year. And then we have some information about just how the Moldorama is made, uh, the history of plastics, and even some uh, Bakelite, which is kind of the first uh, commercially used plastic from the early 1900s from our collection and made things a lot more uh, consumer accessible as far as cost and quantity. So we have some artifacts from that, and we have a great photo op for you to take with your first uh, Moldorama. So a lot of the things here at the museum, there's probably like a generational component where like, you know, families come and where they've come and now they're bringing their kids and their grandkids. But with Moldorama, I would, there's probably a little bit of that too. Maybe like newer generations aren't as familiar, but like grandparents and parents. Yeah, I've seen a lot of parents bringing their young kids here and they um, are just themselves enjoying the experience of watching their kids go through that experience of watching the Moldorama be made, smelling it touching the warm Moldorama and the kind of the satisfaction you get of seeing this uh, souvenir made right before your eyes. Um, so I think that's been fun to watch, but yeah, I think it's a generational thing. Everyone wants to pass that experience along to their uh, kids or grandkids when they come to the museum. And the museum has had Moldoramas here since the 70s? Yeah, 1971 is when we had the Lincoln bust in our Hall of Elements at the time, and it actually cost the guest a dime, um, but the actual material cost was a quarter, so Union Carbide was the sponsor of the exhibition, and they actually offset each mold by 15 cents. And how much does it cost these days? Currently it is a $5 souvenir, and of course you can use a credit card now, your phone, and still cash. That's Jeff Bonomo, the Museum of Science and Industry's Senior Manager of Special Exhibitions. Moldorama, Molded for the Future, will be on display at the Museum of Science and Industry until the fall of next year, 2023. You can find more information at msichicago.org. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. I hope you have a very happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening. <laughs>